This is That's So Second Millennium, where we explore issues at the interface between science, philosophy, and Catholic theology. I'm your host, Paul Giesting, and your co-host is Bill Schmidt. Welcome back to episode 137 of That's So Second Millennium. In this episode, Bill and I stopped to have a conversation about Francis Bacon and his role in intellectual history. So Bacon was actually a jurist by trade, but also a philosopher and, as it were, a proto-scientist. Wrote his influential works in the early 17th century. And while he's a deeply controversial figure who is obviously ridiculous, ridiculously wrong about a lot of things, he was also clearly influential and in fact, prophetic in a number of ways. So while he, for example, radically underestimated how important mathematics would be in science to come, he certainly looked forward to a world in which science had made our lives a lot materially easier with great clarity uh, and an unabashed, yes, we will domesticate nature and have it do our bidding um, in a way that uh, would not be politically correct today. But, uh, yeah, he's, he says that with clarity. And, uh, yeah, there's there's so much that seems to just explode of modernity out of uh, Francis Bacon's work, The New Organon. So we discuss Bacon's place in intellectual history, his polemical, um, incredibly polemical critique of Aristotelian logic and reasoning, which, again, hasn't necessarily worn well and yet has been also clearly seems influential in that yeah, in the training of what we now call scientists, we talk about how that term has been inverted with philosophers since Bacon's day. But in the training of um, modern scientists, there is not, you know, formal logic is not considered a, a requirement in any way. Um, yeah, it's 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 not something that you just can just expect that uh, a modern natural scientist, especially a geologist or a biologist, um, or chemist um, to have necessarily had, um, and that, and to, to what degree we owe that to Bacon is a very interesting question. So, without further ado, this is Bill and I's conversation on Francis Bacon. I want to hear also about the background of uh, your how to how how Bacon uh, came to mind. Uh, oh, or what? Yeah, you know. But however, you want to introduce the topic is yeah. Right? I mean, so. Yeah, I mean, the origin of this episode is that um, Francis Bacon is a you know character from the early 17th century. I mean, he was actually around in the late 16th, um, but his 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 key work is from the 17th century. Um, so that that comes in right at you know the the, Re- the the Reformation happened in the 16th century. The Renaissance really kind of winds up sometime around then, depending on what field of human inquiry you're looking at. And so the the Renaissance in a sense of, you know, a rebirth of ancient learning, which it could never, you can't go back in the egg and be born again. You can't go back in the womb and be born again, as, as the gospel says. Um, so it could never have been just a re just a rebirth of ancient learning, but, but the focus does shift to something new, certainly by the 17th century in a lot of fields, certainly in mathematics and science. So, you know, when, when Bacon is around, people are still very much in an Aristotelian paradigm regarding science. Um, and, and really too much in the sense of his scientific 
results, which were really just speculations, and he practically tells you so in his own works. Um, and then, of course, there's the confusion between how we use the term science now and how it was used all the way up until even the 19th century, but definitely still in Bacon's time. Because um, Aristotle thinks of science as something that you know that's just catastrophically obvious. I mean, it's it's mm. either if it's not just the first obvious principle, like, you know, straight lines only cross in one spot. Um, it, then it's something like, you know, it's a, it's a deduction. It's a straight deduction from something very obvious. Um, and science only goes as far as you can, you can construct bulletproof deductions from catastrophically obvious principles, basically. Um, that's science, that's knowledge, that's true knowing. And then philosophy can be speculation. Um, and then Aristotle and in investigating the natural world did a ton of speculation and told you so, um, from time to time, although not necessarily in his logical works, which is part of the problem. Um, so that, so that sense of natural philosophy, that's very much how say Newton, who is, you know, two generations after Bacon, um, if not three, uh, Newton is, is talking about what he's doing as being natural philosophy. He talks about his rules of reasoning and natural philosophy. Um, he's not talking about science. He doesn't think what he's doing is, you know, the name science doesn't apply. That's just not how the word is used. And somehow in the 18th into the 19th century, there's an overturn between those two, between those two terms where, so a modern, a neo-Aristotelian will almost certainly use philosophy to mean things that are, you know, concrete, logical, not con concrete is not the word I'm groping for, but very solid, logical, um, things that just pretty much have to be true in order for reality to make sense. And then science is now what we, what we use for stuff that we've, we've gone out, we've made observations, we've attempted to infer some general principles. We've seen whether these general, general principles then continue to work when we test them some more, which is, so there's a complete overturn between those two terms, which is very confusing. Yeah, that is something. <laughs> and, uh, and what prompted that overturn exactly? It just a, uh... I'm still. I'm not. I'm not far enough down this rabbit hole to really have a, a good answer for that. As far as mm. what, what prompted people to swap those two terms, I, I really don't know. I have heard that the term "scientist" wasn't coined wasn't coined until the 19th century, for example, which I I suspect is emblematic of that change happening. Um, I mean, sci doing someone who does science in the Aristotelian sense is like. That's that's not much of a thing, you know. There's only yeah. so much. There's only so much blitheringly obvious stuff to talk about, and then you know the interesting thing would be to go beyond that and then become a natural historian, a collector of information about the natural world, or a natural philosopher, someone who reasons about it. Um, right. Whereas now we kind of can draw a distinction between natural history, and natural science, and then sort of, and then there's natural philosophy, which somehow has to sit above and beyond and sort of envelop the entire world of possible natural science in some sense. And I like that combination of words, natural philosophy. Uh, I guess today's uh, academic discipline of philosophy has very little to do with what was understood to be natural philosophy. In a lot of places, I'm certain that's true. Because it's, I mean, it's kind of all over the place, right? That's, the thing about the modern world is you can find, I mean, there's just so many different subpopulations and 
subdisciplines. I mean, there are people who do philosophy of science, and that can that by itself can mean an awful lot of things. Yeah, yeah, is 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 what we're discovering or creating through the scientific method? Does it hold water, or is it just a human construct? Right. But, right. Yeah. But the bottom line is, it sounds like uh, Bacon had something pretty significant to do with all of these things uh, that were kind of in flux starting in the 1600s yeah. and led to the yeah. flip of yeah. terms, so there's, et cetera. There's, um, in, in the 16th century, so the Reformation had to attack scholastic theology, right? It had to attack Catholic theology and therefore, which was thoroughly Aristotelianized, had been you know, the, the truths of the Christian faith had been thoroughly reinterpreted um, in terms of Aristotelian methodology, okay. Aristotelian terms and structure, um, the whole nine yards. And and the Reformation has to attack that. Um, but at the same time, there's not the same impulse to attack Aristotelian natural philosophy, at least not yet. Um, so the 16th century, you know, it's a Cambridge and Oxford or Paris or, you know, Bologna, I assume. Um, he'd still be learning Aristotelian philosophy. So Galileo was brought up in that tradition. Galileo, who's a contemporary of Bacon, um, a little bit younger contemporary of Bacon, I think, mm -hmm. um, but very much the same time period. The early 17th century is when he's doing his, his major work, just like Bacon. Um, and Bacon, of course, is educated in this paradigm. And so, and so that, that, that Aristotelian science, you know, which is, um, kind of encapsulated in the six the six works of Aristotle that are called the organon or the yeah. instrument. So that's mm -hmm. I mean that those are Aristotle's works on logic. And the 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 Muslims had commented on them, had thought about them extensively during that, you know, golden age of Islamic intellectualism around the turn of the first millennium. Hmm. Um and then that had passed over into Europe and, and then finally back into Western Europe and the scholastics and the, you know, starting in the 12th and really getting underway in the 13th century with you know, Aquinas and Scotus and all of those Bonaventure and all those famous figures right. of that, uh, of that movement. They had commented on it extensively. That was their structure. That was their, you know, that was, that was the core of philosophy in important senses was, was the logic of Aristotle. These, these works of what are called the organon, um, the prior and posterior analytics, the topics, the, the categories, um, you know, there's six works in all that, that form that corpus. Um, and so, so that emphasizes the syllogistic type of reasoning which Bacon attacks with, and, the, and it had, it took some, it took some moxie, you know, to attack the syllogism. I mean, Bacon is, Bacon's kind of incredible. Um, even, even with the, you know, relatively modest sense of his context that I have, which, you know, I haven't been educated in this tradition. It's part of what I, at Wyoming Catholic College, and the exciting things about being here is that I get to talk to people who know, you know, very much deeper into the Aristotelian well than I am. Um, but that, you know, I mean, to, to attack that at that time in the like categoric, you know, oddly enough, ironically, categorical way that um, since the categories is one of the works that we're talking about. Uh -huh. um, but Bacon just says the syllogism is useless. He says that syllogistic reasoning is useless. I mean, and then that, you know, and it cuts at the structure of syllogistic reasoning because you need a, you need a major premise and a minor premise, you know, the major premise being some rule that's, you know, true transcendentally across whatever situations you want to consider. 
And then you pick out a minor premise that says, and in this particular situation, those conditions are fulfilled and therefore the consequence happens. Right. And mm. so, and so Bacon says, this is useless. You know, to a large extent, he says, this is useless because we can't, we don't have any valid major premises. That's crap. Oh. You know, we can't believe any of these major premises. We're just making stuff up. We're, you know, we're in, um, we're trying to infer them, but we should just focus basically on that inductive process. And so he titles his work, um, the new organon, which is, a wow. You think you're, I mean, and, and well past Bacon's day. Um, and there are modern philosophers who would still, who would still say that secular, you know, have nothing, you know, no affiliation with the scholastic goals and ideals, um, of the, of, you know, the Catholic middle ages, but, um, are still like Aristotle, like Aristotelian logic is still perfectly valid. Um, there are ways in which it's just, I mean, it's like Euclid's elements. We're not really going to go past it. We'll comment on it and we'll, you know, maybe we'll plug some holes here or there and make it a little clearer for a modern audience, but it's there. Um, seems to be the, uh, and that, you know, he Kant, Kant of all people, you know, mm-hmm. as modern as a modern philosopher gets, right? Um, was, you know, like, yeah, this, this, as far as pure logic goes, this is it. Um, and that's, you know, a century and a half after um, Bacon and people in the end of the 19th, end of the 20th century still, yeah, the organon is, you know, it's bulletproof. It's, it's absolutely true so far as it goes. Um, but Bacon is just like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to write a new organon because we need to, we need something completely different if we want to make progress in natural philosophy, which is what it's called at that point, natural philosophy. You know, learning about the world. Um which is, you know, and he was catastrophically wrong in some ways because of course you still need deductive reasoning. Yeah. And yet and yet is and yet this is extremely influential because I mean you know, as, once you've inverted natural philosophy and natural science to their current definitions, and then you start training yourself up as a scientist, I mean, I certainly didn't learn the organon. And I've, you know, and for 20 odd years, I wished I had, because I've, I've been curious, you know, you learn, a, I learned a little bit of, um, a little bit of formal logic and geometry in high school, in high school, in a public high school in rural Indiana. Uh-huh. Um, a little bit of, you know, I mean, what I remember of it is the whole, like, so you have a conditional statement, if P, then Q, that's your, that's your major premise of your syllogism. Right. Um, and you can invert it. You can, you can form the converse, the inverse and the contrapositive. Yeah. All right. That I remember that. Yes. Right. And I don't know it. And I don't know what Aristotle's terms for those are because I still haven't, even though it's, <laughs> I told myself I was going to read through the materials for that class last semester, but last semester was pretty pretty uh, intense Fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> so that's still so that's still sitting in my docket to 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 take my own tour of at least part of the organon um some yeah it's it's not that horrible a uh, it's not that lofty a goal to aspire to read at all it's been done many times i'll get there but uh but in any case i mean so that's so there's that and then so that, and that just kind of sits there and then in the you know and then my experience is being a practicing scientist, you know, going through the training of being an undergraduate, getting involved in research, writing a senior thesis and, you know, writing a journal article, you know, containing that material, doing a master's thesis, writing journal articles, you know, digesting that material, digesting and extending that material, you know, doing research as a PhD student, you know, writing that up into a dissertation as well as into journal articles. 
and then, you know, sort of launching myself out and continuing to write articles, continuing to review other people's articles. You know, we just don't, we never, you know, we're obviously reasoning. We're obviously using logic, including deductive logic, but we're kind of doing it by feel. Okay. And it's, there's something to me that's just very unsatisfying. It's <laughs> extremely unsatisfying. And yet that's, that's where we're at, you know? So we'll learn. Well, so sort of the 17th century, you know, then this, this harks back to the episode I did about um, Galileo and Newton and so forth back in the fall mm-hmm. when I was teaching that course. Um, you know, so there's, you know, the, the new mathematics of the 17th century, analytic geometry, calculus, um, and so people had been in kind of the, the deductive Greek geometry framework for trying to, to look at the real world, the, the, I mean, the real world, the concrete world, the material world, right. um, if they wanted to, well, or they just wanted to stay in the realm of pure mathematics, which was, you know, one lo- a level abstracted from the material world, um, and considered in itself in that platonic sense of, you know, I want to get rid of this icky matter and just consider the forms to some extent. Um, but the, so, but then, but people still do, even, even the Greeks, you know, even with that bias, the Greeks will still, you know, Archimedes building his, uh, his engines to defend Syracuse from the Romans and things like that. Hmm. Um, people would, people would did do some engineering and they used mathematical, you know, deductive geometric principles and Galileo is still Newton is still trying to use these, um, deductive, you know, this geometric system, this, you know, basically, basically Euclidean system, um, basically Greek geometric system, more broadly speaking, to, to understand mechanics, to understand how the planets move, to understand how, you know, objects roll down inclined planes or just fall in, in Galileo's case. Um, but by, but by the time Newton is doing it, Newton is kind of doing it as a, you know, I'm, he, he's actually found this out by another method, what we now call calculus, a precursor uh. to what we now call calculus. Uh-huh. But calculus is so shady. <laughs> 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 I have I have gone so far out on a limb. I need to I need to go back and use Greek geometric principles to deduce this, and you know, convince myself that it actually holds water, and even more importantly, convince you, dear reader, because this is what you expect to see this is what you would consider to be a real proof right um, but by the time newton's you know released this on the world in the in the 18th century people just start going they've i mean they've got a new toy especially people like i mean Euler's is the the foremost name of 18th century mathematics and he will just he will just go off and he will just take this formalism and trust it and just see where it goes um and it took until the 19th century to really start coming back and trying to put a, a different flavor of logical foundation underneath it. Hmm. And we still haven't, and that's that, that new logical foundation. Yeah. The, the extent to which that's crossed over into an ordinary natural scientists um, education is very scattershot at best. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. I mean, and, and to some degree, to some degree, that has to go back to bacon. It just—it's just too hard to, you know, look at Bacon's work, and he was definitely read and he was admired. 
um, the Royal Society, you know, that uh, was in, um, right. and, you know, down to the present, but, you know, was definitely of a great importance in the late 17th, 18th and 19th centuries in terms of, you know, a, a collection of scientists talking to each other, pushing their disciplines forward. Um, that was, I mean, the, the founders of that, um, and, and later members as well, you know, explicitly look back to Bacon as this guy's inspiring. We're following mm. this guy's lead. Uh, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're reaching for. So he was really, uh, the disruptor of his age. Uh, and- he, he really was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, disruptive and, indeed. That describes Bacon really well. <laughs> well, and the I'm, I'm fascinated by that uh, whole evolution between um, uh, deduction and induction, because as you're saying, they both properly go together in a lot of ways. And I guess I, my, I would be I would tend to believe and to be inspired by someone who had somehow masterfully achieved a nice balance between the two. But it sounds like Bacon was such a disruptor that he was uh, really just throwing deduction onto the garbage pile of history. And it was a kind of uh, modernist uh, moment or proto-modernist moment. Oh, it was. Yeah. I mean, it's like I'm reading this and I'm thinking the image that comes to my mind is that this is like Mork's egg from Mork and Mindy just <laughs> yeah. landing on this planet, crammed full of modernism, and it just lands on this planet and cracks and just spews modernism all over the place. I, I love mean, it. it's just – I'm reading this. It's like, a, it's like a capsule. Like, wow, this is – it's all here, isn't it? I mean, you know, you know what else is in there? Um, I mean, what's Bacon's motivation for doing this? I was I mean, going to ask, yeah. He tells you what his motivation for doing this is. It's to master – it's to tame nature and make it do our business. That's what it's for. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, it is right there in black and white. And it is just, I mean, I'm just sitting here, you know, like that guy in the Memorex ad, like, just like, oh my gosh, here it is. It's <laughs> right? right here. All of yeah. it's here. I didn't yeah. know this was, it's, this is too neat and tidy. This is like somebody's planted this. Yeah. Does this really all go back to this guy in 1619 or whatever the heck it is? When he was writing this, I think, you know, it appeared in 1620, but, you know, it takes time to write things. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, this guy in the 16 teens is sitting here having these thoughts that are like hundreds of years ahead of his time, it seems like. Is he is he really just, you know, is, is he able to invoke this? I hesitate to call it a demon. I mean, that's a little unfair, but <laughs> um, I mean, really, though, is, wow. <laughs> And where did the, and of course my next question is, where did this come from? I mean, nobody, nobody has completely new ideas. Right. (laughs) One would think, Uh, yeah. But it's a new way of thinking rather than simply new ideas as uh, concrete entities to fit into a syllogism or anything. Yeah, he's doing something new. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like the kind of thinking that uh, folks like uh, Luther would have done in the realm of uh, yeah. religion, kind of yeah. that kind Luther of disruptor and the, and the other reformers, you know, had to had to pick things up and turn them around and put them in a new context for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, so it led to ultimately uh, a real growth toward induction, and 
did that solve everybody's uh, problem in science? And where where has it led us? Uh, are scientists today necessarily just believers in induction? Well, that's the intriguing thing. I mean, because you know, so Hume comes in a century after that. So Hume is a, another figure who's you know a century and a half after. Um, after Bacon and, you know, Hume of the great, well, we have no idea whether the sun is going to rise tomorrow. You know, what allows us to conclude that? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, throws induction out the window, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, but that, yeah, it's, it's so bizarre how these things can go. I mean, the, the different directions that philosophy and what we now call science, you know, the, the, the very different paths that they take and the fact that they can almost, they seem to have a firewall set up in between them sometime yeah. between Bacon's time and the 19th century to mm-hmm. where people can be, people can be speculating all of these bizarre things like idealism, right. um, you know, Hume's radical skepticism about induction, all of that type of stuff is going on over here in this watertight compartment. And then science, as we now call it, is going on in this other watertight compartment where we're, looking at the natural world, drawing inferences, constructing, sorry, Bacon, um, you know, major premises that we can then test um, and then seeing if they hold water, if the syllogisms we draw from them turn out to, you know, if the conclusions we draw from these syllogisms turn out to be true, um, then we say, hey, it looks like this major premise that we've you know, devised and called the scientific law seems to be working pretty well. It predicted some things that I had no expect. I mean, like like a, a discussion we were actually having in our class on Darwin today. The the, the seniors at WCC do a class on evolution. Uh-huh. Um, so so the example came up. One of the students brought up that you know. So there's the whole episode of, episode of the discovery of Neptune. So you know. So Herschel sticks his telescope up at the sky, notices something. He's looking for comments. Hey hey, there's something that's moving but it's not moving right for a comet. And eventually <laughs> he, he publishes his results. And I, as I recall, it actually takes other people to convince Herschel that he's found a new planet, which mm-hmm. no one, you know, no one other than William Herschel has, has, or probably will ever simply, simply stick a telescope in the sky and randomly discover a planet. He's got, he's got his spot, right? You know, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing can take him. I think of okay. This is you know for those of you who are sports uh, fans in the audience. See if you see if you draw this barrel. So there is a pre- a pitcher, a fairly nondescript pitcher, really. Um, but he's a major league pitcher, which all the, already is something important. So for the for the St. Louis Cardinals in 2006, so they make it to the World Series. You know, it's it's a dogfight to get out of um, the National League Championship Series and win the pennant. Um, the pitching staff is exhausted. We've we've used our good pitchers. Um, we've got to face the Trigers, who are you know supposed to win the World Series in three because they're so much better than we are. And all we can do is throw Anthony Reyes up there because he's he's our best starting pitcher left. He goes out there and you know he gives up two runs in like eight innings or eight and a third or something like that. And you know and our bats explode and we score seven runs for him. And like and you know what did he do with the rest of his career? Nothing. But he is Anthony Reyes. World Series winning pitcher, thank you very much until the day he dies. Right. Good for him. <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> William Herschel, the man who discovered a planet 
Thank you very much. Book it. <laughs> uh, Can't take one, that away from it. Kind of a one-hit wonder. Yeah, uh, it's the only, yeah. only time that was going to be done. So, so in the decades after Herschel discovers this planet, people start charting its orbit, and people's telescopes are getting better and better and better. Um, and they are they are able at the, in the early 19th century to say, you know, Uranus is not exactly moving the way we expect it to because of Newton's laws. Huh. Certainly, you know, the base of Kepler's laws, which are really only valid if a planet is moving in isolation around the sun. Um, or even with the corrections we know how to make with 18th century technology. Man, people doing those calculations. Um, but, you know, it's not quite moving exactly how we expect it to. And then somebody comes up with the right idea. Well, what if something about its mass is even further out in the solar system? And it turns out that would that would potentially explain it. So, and then and then finally, in the eighteen forties, somebody finally stuck a couple of telescopes in the sky and found Neptune. But that was only after the mathematicians had discovered it, right? right. So, if we, if we discover another planet, if we discover you know another Earth or Neptune-sized planet out there somewhere, it's going to have been because you know some. There was a great disturbance in the force and, you know, something needed explaining. We're not going to just randomly discover it. Almost <laughs> certainly. Um, if we did, if that was going to happen, we'd have done it already. Um, yeah. So that's, that's an anomaly that, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's deductive reasoning in a sense. Like, you know, this, this prediction didn't, wasn't fulfilled. And yet, you know, if I extended it a little bit further, I made a prediction and then, you know, this consequence turns out to actually be the case. So this principle turns out to be more powerful than I thought or as powerful as I thought. And it, it, it makes this very, you know, crazy prediction. I mean, there's another planet out there. I mean, I'm already tripping out about the fact that there's one beyond the one, the ones the ancients knew about. Um, and now you're telling me there's a second additional one. And of course, once people start doing that, then, you know, then they're off to the races and they're, they're looking for a third one. They eventually discover Pluto, which isn't nearly big enough to actually fit the bill. So that was, in a way, Pluto was an accident, huh. um, but it was a different kind of accident. <laughs> 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 well, you're, uh, you're making me perform one of those uh, Segway kinds of jumps uh, in my head uh, via several different hyperlinks. Uh, you, you mentioned I've mentioned a moment ago about evolution. You were talking with your students about evolution, yeah. and that reminded me that a couple of days ago I was having a conversation with somebody about how the behavior of COVID and especially the behavior of Omicron was a very interesting present-day example of evolution based on the idea that viruses – evolve mm -hmm. in order to keep their host alive, but still mm. to kind of uh, drain, drain off their life yeah. force or whatever. And go. so, yeah. And uh, so that's, that's evolution in front of our very eyes and uh, on the COVID in the political and, and social realm has been a kind of a potential feast of induction before our very eyes, because it's been constantly changing. We haven't known 
what to do about it. We've had to learn based on changing experiences. And would you agree that looking back on it now, well, please God, we can look back on it uh, more than look uh, look ahead to more of it. But it seems as though we haven't really emerged very handy at all of that induction that had to go on. In fact, it seemed as though a lot of our inclinations were toward deduction. Mm-hmm. We wanted we wanted science to yield immovable, certain, immediately confirmed facts that could inform policy decisions made by leaders. Oh, and our leaders, am I right? And so, yeah. wasn't that a real a real fault in how to use induction and deduction? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's 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 the cursed thing about this whole business is that it goes it it rubs human nature the wrong way. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we hate it. We yeah. hate it so much. We want we want these we want that Aristotelian science, man. Right. We want that we want that clear and obvious, irrefutable, blitheringly straightforward first principle and just like the most absolute most obvious deductions from it. Right. And we want to be we want it to be set in stone and immovable and obviously the right thing to do. And you can't possibly do that in this situation. Right, right. It can't or possibly. in other situations, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And so, of course, people jump to, you know, on one side of a, of a debate, you know, and of course, this immediately got sucked into our, you know, left versus right, you know, existing political chasm. Um, and immediately people started lining up and then looking at where their fellow tribal members were lining up and started going over to that side of the debate. But, yeah, that we aren't going to know. This new virus, we don't know how it's transmitted. We don't know, I mean, we don't know the details. We have a yeah. broad idea. It's a respiratory virus. People can probably transmit it by sneezing into the air or vice versa or coughing into the air and so on, or maybe just by breathing. Um, so it's not like we know nothing, but we don't right. know the details. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a an incredible amount of detail that we would want to know in order to make an actual decent prediction. But man, we just want that. We want something set and we want, I mean, I, it's, it's what I like to call the bureaucratic mindset, you know, Pache, uh, Dr. McCoy at the end of Star Trek four, um, you know, where it's the, the bureaucratic mindset is that, you know, they'll get a freighter, but, um, <laughs> instead right. of, you know, the new starship enterprise. But, right. uh, I mean, what I call a bureaucratic mindset is the whole, like, Basically, we know almost everything there is to know, and we can just go ahead and make policy decisions for the best interest of y'all. And we don't know what we don't know. And the the one thing I'll say about it is it's a safe bet that we know a lot less than we think we do. Yeah. I mean, so COVID is a – I mean, yeah. So COVID is a great example, and COVID is kind of a tame example. Um. But it's a, it's a tame it's an everyday example with huge practical consequences, right? Um, yeah, we don't know. I mean, it would be nice to you know, and, and we'll add we'll gain something from this experience potentially. Um, the science, the good thing about it is, is that the sociology of science does actually seem to work. We will learn things about it. Yeah. Have we gotten to the point where will we make sane policy decisions about it? Ooh, that's mm. that's a very different question. Uh, again, please God, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So my my kind of closing question slash input on this would be uh, the question: Have we become 
more baconized uh, in the present day or not enough bake not sufficiently so baconized? yeah yeah um that's that's a hard question to answer in terms of like making an overall assessment of it bacon the thing bacon had seems to have had well he had more than one blind spot but Something that pretty much everyone, I think, agrees Bacon had a huge blind spot for was that he didn't value mathematics nearly enough. Mm. And you look at his perspective. So people had started to do statistics and probability, you know, reasoning about that that type of thing because people like to gamble, basically. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, there's a character in the history of mathematics from Italy in the 16th century named Cardano, who, uh, among many other things... Um, had an early work on probability theory, but that didn't really start to come into its own until after Bacon's time. And to do Bacon's inductive work, Bacon thought he could do this by just putting together tables. Hmm. He could just list observations off and then sort of read them against each other and do this sort of in a sort of non-mathematical sense. Uh, You can't do that. I mean, you need some sort of statistical ability to reason statistically. Um, And Bacon had no sense of that. His, His crystal ball did not show him that in any way, shape, or form for all that he seems to be incredibly prescient in some ways um, about what knowing more about the natural world could do for us, about disease, about raising food, things like that. Um, It's a classic case of data, uh, gathering data simply not being enough. Uh, You have to analyze data and you need some structures within which to analyze it. Yeah, yeah. And of course, in the modern world, we, you know, it is... Once, once you've had that insight, well, you know, I need things that I can count in order to do statistics on them, in order to make management decisions. Well, then you start only paying attention to the things that you can count, which not yes. everything is very easy to count. Amen. It, so in that sense, maybe, maybe in a sense, we've be, we haven't, maybe, maybe we've drifted away from, you know, some of, some odd piece of wisdom that Bacon actually had to um, impart or at least kind of accidentally happens to have you know, like, yeah, yeah, there are things that we can't interpret mathematically, at least not yet. Um, at the very least, we need to be persistent in finding better ways to, you know, again, uh, it would be another aspect of the bureaucratic mindset to settle for the first way of quantifying it that comes to my mind and then go from there yeah. without, without doing any kind of critical thinking about whether I've quantified it well. Um, and then, of course, there's the other side of it, the human nature. Once you've established a metric, human nature will start gaming the metric. <laughs> yes, that's so true. <laughs> Maybe yes. it's standardized testing or whatever kind of you know financial security thing that you try to establish to keep people from cheating, you know, taking or excessive use, risks in the stock market, et cetera. Right, or something like using uh, HR – uh, personnel assessment techniques that are all metrics based when the metrics a can be manipulated just by what they are and how they're interpreted and enforced. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, there has to be so much more of the human context for them, but, but it's so easy to uh, ignore that. That's too complicated. Right. That's too messy. I just want an answer. That's, I mean, yeah, that's another aspect of what I'm calling the bureaucratic mindset. Yeah, that's too messy. It's everybody, I'm done mindset. thinking. I need to go ahead and start implementing something. So, yeah. And I think that's what our political leaders faced uh, and and displayed an awful lot in these COVID oh, times, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yes, oh indeed. man. 
Yeah. I think that's pretty true. So. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, the bacon perspective on it really yes. adds a whole different dimension for me. That's really it, interesting. I it, oh, it's, it's fascinating. It's it's one of those things, you know, it did, he's, he comes up, his name appears at the fringes of histories of science. It's like, oh, yeah, he was important. And it's like, you know, the mental note, like, someday I need to read some bacon. Well, fortunately, I am now teaching at Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm forced to read some Francis Bacon, uh, and I am very thankful that it finally, yeah. it finally, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, Providence needs to, yeah, sometimes Providence has its own ways of getting me to, to read the things that uh, God wants me to read, I suppose. I don't know. Well, yeah, Providence never promised us a rose garden, huh? There is that. Yeah. There is that, too. Yeah. That's right. That, that's, that's the bureaucratic mindset, promising us rose gardens and crap. Well, that's right. And our leaders were trying to promise us rose gardens uh, through authoritarian measures sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's another podcast, Bill. I think, we need, to, podcast, sorry. I think we need to call it there for today. But no. Oh, fair been, <laughs> I think we had fun. I hope you do too, dear listener. So uh, that I think we'll let you go. Join, <laughs> join us next time. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Giesting. Until next time.